All right, let's turn to Genesis chapter 31. And we're going to read through 44 through 55. Thank you. We're starting in verse 44. Verse 44. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let, us, let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Shadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap to me, and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Last week, I started off the message with a question. Have you ever felt forgotten by God? This week, the question is, do you know that God sees you? That is one of the greatest comforts for the believers to know that God sees us, especially when we feel forgotten, especially when we wonder, is God, does God know where I'm at right now? I know I went through a period of time where it was like that for me. After college, I went to Bible college to be a pastor And then after Bible college, it was a long time before I was a pastor. I remember me and my wife, we were caretakers of this museum house over in Wheaton, Illinois by Chicago. I remember raking these leaves thinking, God, do you remember me? I'm right here. And an experience very much like Jacob has in this chapter right here. We don't always feel forgotten by God, but sometimes we wonder, God, are you still seeing? Do you know where I'm at? There's an important word in this chapter, mizpah. It means watchtower, that God sees where we're at. In our hurts and injustices, there's a God who is watching, who is ready to deliver and to save. For the believer, this is so comforting, but for the believer who is in rebellion, it's one of the most harshest things to remember, that God does see me and knows where I'm at. For the unbeliever, it's the most hated truth that it cannot be gotten away from. In our times of wandering away, we have a shepherd who sees us and his rod and his staff brings us back home. 
Chapter 31, we are going over all of chapter 31, not just that one snippet, but I figured it's like 55 verses and longer verses. You'd be standing a long time, and then next week there'll probably be about half of you. You're like, I don't want to come to this church anymore. I'm just kidding. I know you'd be fine with it. Um, But chapter 31 is an exciting chapter compared to the rest of Jacob's life. A lot of Jacob's life, it's like, okay, he, he, he cheats his brother, so he has to run. So, but this one, on the other hand, it's like a high story. And that's why I called it the Mesopotamian job. Because they, had, they did actually, little did Jacob know, they did steal some of uh, Laban's stuff. And they, they took off. They had seven days, and then Laban's chasing after them. So once again, it's kind of like this really exciting moment. It's like, okay, they're going to get caught. Laban chases after them. He does not have good intentions for Jacob. And it's, it's very intense. You know, other names for this sermon, um, I thought of uh, the name of this one is a spoof on the Italian job. It's the Mesopotamian job. Other rejected titles were Oceans, Oceans 3, which is Jacob and his two wives, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, The Hustle in the Old Testament, and The Great Idol Robbery. We're in this series right now on the patriarchs, the fathers of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it'll be Jacob's 12 sons will be known collectively as the patriarchs. I do this recap every week. I say last time on patriarchs. This week, I want to look at what has come before in, in, when we talk about idols. Because this is the big part of what we're talking about today is idols. God is after your idols. Be aware. He is after your idols. He will not allow anything else to sit in that throne other than himself. And when you look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it is a story of idols. Abraham, back when he was Abram in Ur the Chaldees, he was a pagan, he was a pagan worshiping pagan. In Joshua 24 verse 2, it says that Abraham and his father were worshiped idols. We can make some educated guesses about their religion by looking at the history of the religious artifacts from that time and from that area of the era of the Chaldees. There's an ancient city there that flourished until about 300 BC. The great ziggurat of Ur was built by Ur-Namu around 2100 BC, and it depicted the god Nana, the moon god. The moon was worshipped as the power and controlled, that controlled the heavens and the life cycles of the earth. To the Chaldeans, the phases of the moon represented the natural cycles of birth, growth, decay, and death. Also, the measurements of the yearly calendar. Among the pantheon of the Mesopotamian gods, Nana was supreme. What a name for a god, Nana. Sounds kind of wimpy, but that. Because he was the source of fertility for their crops, for their herds and families. Prayers and offerings were offered to the moon to invoke its blessing Isaac's wife comes from that same region, comes from Abraham's family, but she almost immediately deserts the gods of her people to worship the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the Lord himself, Yahweh. Jacob, on the other hand, his idols are not named Nana. They're not named Baal or Zeus or Thor or whatever. See, the supreme deity of Jacob's pantheon up to this point was spelled M-E. He would sacrifice so many things to this great idol and God in his life. His relationship with his brother, of course, like he cared, but then he didn't realize he was also sacrificing his relationship with his mother and father. 
He would find out the cost of of sacrificing to this idol will never leave his home until his second to youngest son would decide he would not stand in the place of God. What we have been reading and studying is how the golden calf in Jacob's life is starting to shatter, starting to break. And if a couple chapters, it will be utterly shattered and he'll be known as Israel. He still refers to God as the God of Abraham, but in a couple chapters, God will be his God. Speaking of idols, Rachel steals her father's household gods. They're also known as idols. Idols were a big part of life in the ancient world, but they still are today. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. And their idols are a big part today. I know when I'll... I watch football now, which is a weird thing for me. And people who know me, they're like, what? I do. I haven't watched it the pregame season. I'm like, I'm up on it now. And uh, you know what's amazing to me? It's like January or February. And you see people in sub-zero weather, like, you know, they, they, the guys, they don't have their shirt on. They've painted themselves the colors of their team. They're freezing to death, but they're out there. It's fanatical worship, isn't it? The person who won't pay their rent payment so they can get tickets to the game, that's worship. That is sacrifice to your God. A couple years ago, in 2013, I went to Comic-Con. Spoiler alert, I'm a huge nerd. If you've been to my house, you know what I'm talking about. It's a little overwhelming how much of a nerd I am. So I went to Comic-Con, and it really turned my stomach because it was a place of worship as well. You had all these idols that people had and people freaking out, losing their minds because of this guy who was a a minor character in a TV show they watched growing up was on stage. We are geared for worship and our sinful heart will look to anything other than the Lord himself to worship. Probably one of the biggest idols of our time, Simon and Garfunkel figured it out well before it happened. The people bowed and prayed to the neon God they made. This one pings me. Just in case you're wondering, it's like, he's talking about me, I'm talking about myself. I I use my phone more than a 14-year-old girl, I I tell you what. (laughs) My wife sometimes like uh, gets on me for this and everything. But you ever wonder, I mean, you go outside, you go to major events and you see all these people, all these supplicants, all these religious folks bowing down to their one true God. Oh, the Bible says this? Well, my God right here, it says something different. My God, Twitter, my God, whatever. And to put all of these things under God, you see, God today, he wants to take your idols away. He wants to take anything that would try to supplant him. Abraham Kipner um, wrote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Everything we see bad in the world today started in church. Everything we see bad in, in society, in American society today, started in church because we forgot about this. We started saying, okay, there's certain things God doesn't really care about, whatever, do whatever you want. Then all of a sudden that translates into God doesn't care who you're sleeping with, no matter what the scripture says. And you have well-known leaders of whole denominations who say that God whispers about sexual sin. And then we see the craziness in the world today. But the truth is there's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over 
over Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. In chapters 30, in chapter 30, in family and in work, God proved himself faithful to Jacob. And now Jacob in chapter 31 has revelation from God that says that very thing. God calls him home. That's my first point. Second, we're going to talk about idols. And third, about this watchtower. So we go into chapter 31, starting in verse 1. And we see God calling Jacob home. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that our fathers, all that our fathers, and from what was our fathers, he has gained all this wealth. Verse 2, and Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Verse 3, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your father and your kindred, and I will be with you. The word in this chapter for home, house, dwelling is bayit. Jacob had been in Laban's bayit and house for nearly 20 years. Jacob says 14 years for his wives, six years for the flock. Now he wants to go home. Chapter 30, he wanted to go home. And now in chapter 31, God tells him you're going home. The Hebrew word that Laban uses to understand why Jacob would leave is bayet. He thinks he's homesick for his father's dwelling. It's a simple word. It means house or place where you belong. Home is where the heart is. And Jacob was a man of the tents, but that is not what he misses. Eventually, Jacob's understanding of home will change. It'll change to what in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 says. And I believe I've got that up there as well. For we know that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on the heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we were in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us This very thing is God who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. God is calling him back to the promised land, but he's calling us to that as well. And we have this desire. We should not be at home in this world. The scripture keeps telling us that. Don't be at home in this world. Do not love this world. Know that our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. In verses one and two, we see Laban's envy of Joseph has now spread to his sons and his sons are, are talking some serious smack against Jacob. Laban crosses the line in the previous chapter trying to curse Jacob. It is his own fault that the wealth of Laban has now been transferred to Jacob because God had promised Jacob, those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will be blessed. Laban's sons see this and they, and they are angry. Jacob wisely understands it is time for him to get out, of te- get out of Dodge. Laban envies Jacob, and that's a very dangerous place to be in when one side of that equation has all the muscle and you just have a bunch of wives. Verse three, returning home. He was only supposed to be in Mesopotamia for a couple weeks. A couple weeks turns into 20 years. I think I said last time, like when I left um, North Dakota for the last time, or Dakota for the last time was about 12 years ago. But I can go back and I'll probably visit family around Thanksgiving. Jacob has not been home for 20 years. 
And he knows in his heart that home is not with Laban. Home is the promised land. He's not even a person of faith yet, but he understands that it is the promised land he needs to go back to. He was only supposed to be a couple weeks. Find a wife, come back. Maybe his brother would have cooled down by then. It's now 20 years. And I know what that's like. I know what that's like. I remember in college, especially my freshman year, being disillusioned with so many things. I allowed my heart to grow cold against the Lord and I just became a cynic, a critic of all the things in my life. And I remember my long-term mentor, his wife, she called me on this stuff. I remember getting angry with her and then I go to the Lord in prayer and God's like, yeah, you're, you're far from me. Your love for me has grown cold. In Revelation chapter two, verse five, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from the place unless you repent. Are you in a place today? You used to be close with the Lord. You used to know the Lord. You used to walk with the Lord. And now you feel so distant. Repent. Do the things you did at the beginning with your relationship with God. When you're so excited to come to church, when you are so excited to read the Bible, to pray, do those things once again. Do the things you did at the beginning. You see this in marriage relationships that have grown cold and people wondered, how did we ever get to this place? Do the things you did at the beginning. Husbands, chase after your wife. Let her know she's the most important thing in your world. Wives, respect your husband. Look at him the way you did when you were dating. He could do no wrong. And you overlooked all those really annoying things that once he got married, it's almost unbelievable. And he just sips the soup and I've told him to stop how many times? Do the things you did at the beginning. You didn't care about the soup, soup slipping or whatever I'm trying to say here. Do the things he once did. He has been in this place. It was only supposed to be a couple of weeks. It's been 20 years. I think that's where a lot of people, especially believers, get to. Is that in a time of suffering a time of sorrow, they, they look towards something to comfort them. We know this from addictions to pornography, to food, to so many things. Instead of looking to the Lord to comfort us, we run to this thing to comfort us. It was only supposed to be for a bit of time so we could get past this. And now it's that thing that we said, okay, this is the last time I'm doing this has become a pastime in our life. But God is telling you today, come home. It's time to come home. Stop striving. Stop working so hard and just come home. Not at home in the world. Verses four through nine. Last chapter, we got the Reader's Digest version of Jacob and Laban's working relationship. In verses four through nine, we see beyond the veil. In verse four, so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but God of my father has been with me. You like the juxtaposition there? Your father curses me. The father, the God of my fathers is blessing me. Verse six, you know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. There's another Star Wars character, Laban's like, he's altered the deal. Pray he doesn't alter it further. 10 times. But God did not permit him to harm me. Have that kind of glasses on. Where you see all the problems in your world, but you remember, but God. But God, you meant for harm, but God meant it for the good. 
And there's nothing that God will allow in my life to destroy me, but he will turn it to the good. His message to his wives is the only land that is truly home for them is the land that is promised to Abraham and to Isaac and yes, to Jacob. Their father tried to cheat him, but God have those kind of glasses on. It's the vision Jacob's second son, second youngest son, Joseph has when he is speaking to his brothers who had sold him to slavery that what they meant for evil, God meant it for the good. In Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In John chapter one, verse 18, no one has seen God, but God, the one and only who is of, who is at the Father's side has made him known. Acts chapter 3, verse 15. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. You know the lowest point in human history? The most evil act in all of human history was the death of God's son. We take it for granted. We, we got our cross, we wear our cross, we have crucifix, and we're like, Jesus died for you. But do you understand the enormity of that? God died. Can you imagine if you're an angel in heaven and you, saw, you see the one who spoke the worlds into existence, who split the Red Sea, and these people, these muddy people, put their hands on him and nail him to a tree. It's the most evil act in all of human history, but God, his father, raised him from the dead, so it's the most blessed act of human history. For salvation for all who would believe. All who would repent and believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, it is the greatest blessing coming out of the greatest curse because he cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And you're here today and you're wondering, how is God going to make a message out of my mess? How is God ever going to turn this around? How am I ever going to know the joy of the Lord again? Remember, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And as Joseph is saying to his wives, your father tried to cheat me 10 times, but the God of my father, the God of his father, and who one day would be his God is watching over him. As I read in here, if he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the stripped shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore stripes. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flocks were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here am I. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then, Leah and Rachel, then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion of the inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he said to us, and he has indeed devoured our money. The angel of the Lord, and that is God in the Old Testament, comes to Jacob in a dream. And he tells him this. He tells him that he is the God of Bethel. And a couple chapters before this, he has this dream of a stairway to heaven. And angels are ascending and descending this stairway. And God 
the father is above this stairway. And at this time, he calls the place Bethel. Bethel means house of God. And he makes a pillar of stones. He anoints it and he makes his vows. And God comes to him again in this time. And this is the thing you need to hear too. When you are feeling like God doesn't see me, he tells you, I am the God of Bethel. I am the God of Bethel. What's your Bethel? Let me tell you some of my Bethels. Truly, the the funny thing about Bethel is that the house of God is everywhere. You are the house of God because he desires to dwell within you. So Bethel is everywhere, but you know what I mean. Those moments where you experience God in such a unique way. My my first Bethel probably was the camp that I grew up in over in Lakewood Park Bible Camp in Devil's Lake, North Dakota. For a period of time, I grew up in a little town called Devil's Lake in North Dakota. And um, just a funny tidbit, our, our high school mascot was was Satan, literally Satan. And it was the devil's like Satan's and it was a very weird place. All that to say that God saved me in devil's lake away from Satan and the Satan's. And uh, God called me into ministry at the camp that is there. And I remember even to this day, if I go back to that camp, that's my Bethel. That is where I made my pillar. I anointed it and made my vows to God. And when things are going difficult in ministry, and not just here, I mean, throughout all of my life, sometimes it is so bad. I mean, I remember there's times where I would go to camp with kids and I'd be crying at the altar, begging God to take the burden away, but the call of God is irrevocable. And I remember there was a Bethel over in Devil's Lake, North Dakota, and he is God of Bethel. Where is your Bethel? I think I have a lot of places that are special because those are the places I met with God. The church I grew up in, the Bible camp God called me into ministry, the bedroom I gave my life to the Lord in, where when you are triumphing or trembling, God is telling you he is the God of Bethel. In verses 14 through 16, um, I didn't read those. I'll read those right now, right, uh, right now. Then Rachel and Leah answered and, and said to him, is there any portion of the inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded as foreigners as, uh, regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, uh, wherever, whatever God has said to you, do. We just witnessed a miracle right there. Did you catch it? These two sisters agreed on something. Ah. You remember in the last chapter, they're literally using children and their maid servants as like pieces on a chessboard against each other. They've kind of, they finally gotten to this point where they're able to agree on something. You know, this is something I just want to take an aside right here. We don't go over these narratives in the Old Testament to be like, hey, these are really terrible people. Don't be like them. No, these are the best of us and they struggle. They struggle and they fail like you and me. And they are in desperate need of a savior like you and me and constantly in the need of a savior. Because here's the, with all the chaos in the family, you know what we see here? We see a good, we see a good husband who doesn't just tell his wives, here's what we're doing. He he lays out the situation before him, why he believes that they need to get out of here. And then they, they agree with him. Whatever God tells you to do, Let's, let's do it. Let's be united. Let's be one and do this. In verse 17 through 24, here's the dramatic part. Here is the chase. 
This is like in those, uh, in those uh, heist movies. They're, they're getting away, and it's like, are they going to get away, or is the person going to catch them? Verse 17, he instructed the first. When Esau was my... Um, sorry, I am in the wrong chapter. Let me get to, let me get to uh, chapter 31, verse 17. So Jacob and Rose and set his sons and his wives on the camels. He drove away all his livestock and his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Pada Aram to, the, to go to the land of Canaan to, the, to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the, the Amerian, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and across the Euphrates and set his face to the hill country of Gilead. Um, when, it had, when, he was told, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen and, um, with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. The chase is on. Now, it's probably not as cinematic as like the Italian job with their little, uh, little, uh, little cars they are driving the, 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 the gold away in, but it, the, the, the consequences are much dire because Laban, he's not running after them to say, hey, you left without saying goodbye, let's have tea and crumpets. He's brought his uh, strong men with him, his relatives, as in his sons, and he is, he's out for blood. And uh, little does Jacob know, they actually did steal from Laban. He just doesn't know it. And they get out of there. They have a three days head start. And in seven days, they catch up to him. Um, it's a, once again, it's a very dramatic time here. If you remember the end of the last chapter, Jacob is now rich and has a lot of servants. It's not as dramatic, like I said before, because you don't move super fast when you have to have not just your wife, or wives in his case, your children. He has 11 kids. That's a lot of kids. Um, you also have your servants. You have your animals. This is very slow going. That's why they take off. They try to get a three-day head start. They have around 300 miles to cover. It's a chase nonetheless. They leave without telling Laban. In fact, the word right there, when it talks about, um, when it talks about them, uh, them taking off, that it stole the heart of Laban. I like to think because he was sad that he didn't get to say goodbye to his kids and his grandkids. I wonder if it was more about his idols that are missing. If it's more about the flocks that were missing. He didn't get the chance to try to, to, try to trick Jacob even out of those. When he, takes after, after, when he runs after them, think of this as a war party. Laban will tell Jacob that he has the power to hurt him. Why would he bring the power to hurt him unless he intended to hurt him? In verse 24, God comes to Laban in a dream and warns him about doing evil to Jacob. He tells him, beware. I said last week, Laban wouldn't have gone to somebody else's property, found a couple of their sheep and goats and slapped them around. But that's what he's been doing to God's sheep, Jacob. God's had enough of it. And he comes to Laban in a dream and tells him, beware. Beware, do not say anything evil or good to Jacob. Jacob is fleeing to Gilead, which is some 300 miles from Haran. And Laban is seven days behind. He takes him seven days to catch up with him. And his intentions towards him is not to wish him well, not to have tea and crumpets and say, and say goodbye. It's to do harm to him. 
Verses 25 through 35, we're going to deal with his stolen gods. Verse 25, and Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and and driven away my daughters like the captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth, songs, and tambourine and lyre? Who does this liar think he's fooling? He didn't bring those things with him. Verse 28. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Speaking of his grandsons and granddaughters. Farewell. Now you have done foolishly. It is, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you have longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? What about these household gods? You probably noticed I didn't talk much about these household gods, specifically that Rachel stole. The Hebrew word is teraphim. And in my opinion, the teraphim were really just expensive action figures. They were basically little people that, uh, that represented the gods that they worshiped. Laban believed that these gods specifically watched over his family. They were his patron gods. They were small and able to be carried away. And and, um, God, and any God that can be carried away is not much of a God. But Laban's angry and he wants, he feels like he's been cheated even though he is the one doing all of the cheating. Verses 25 through 30, we see Laban's accusations. Laban really sees these wives, Jacob's wives, his children, his wealth, all to be Laban's. He is absolutely wrong about this. When, Jacob, when Laban catches up to Jacob, we see how wise Jacob was to get out of that place. Laban makes accusations. He claims ownership over Jacob's wages, his wives, and his children. He has dealt in bad faith, but God protected Jacob and still does. In verse 29, Laban tells Jacob that it was in his hand to do evil to, against him, but the God of his father stopped him. That's a nice veiled threat, right? It's like, I could beat you up. I could break your job, but I'm not going to do that today. Nice place he got here. It'd be a shame if something bad happened. Yeah, he's threatening him and Jacob is not having it anymore. He makes a direct, unfortunately, a true accusation. His household gods have been stolen. Someone stole Laban's gods and Jacob and his company are the only people missing from the place. More and more pastors, men and women of God are despised in our culture. More and, men, more and more real men, of, men and women of God are despised in churches too. Why? Because if someone's a real man or woman of God, they do not act on their own, but they act on the orders of God and God is after idols. And nobody wants their golden calf destroyed. God uses them to feed and take care of his sheep. This means that we are after your idols and make no mistake, me as your pastor, I'm after your idols. You'll talk to me about something and the Holy Spirit will speak to me. And I know that the real issue is not because you have low self-esteem or because this person's being mean to you at work or something like that. I see an idol in your life and I want that idol. I want to take that idol. I want to break it. I want to crush it into, into dust and I want to feed it to you, back to you to see, show you how bitter it really is. 
This is not my personality. This is the burden that God puts on men and women of God. God won't let us talk about anything unless the idol is taken care of. We know it means that, honestly, that you will maybe end up hating us. We can't help it. God wants that idol and he wants it broken. Jacob has his answer in verses 31 through 35. He is, once again, he is not having it anymore. Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out that I, um, I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. This is, uh, once again, this is uh, quite the moment. Um, I like to mess around with some of the memes lately. And there's a meme from the office of uh, Michael, uh, Michael's cringe face. And so I put it on Rachel. Because you can imagine Rachel is here and she's hearing Jacob is like, if you find it, kill him. <laughs> I gotta go. I have womenly problems, Jacob. <laughs> Stolen goods. More um, Jacob's answer. Laban wants to know why Jacob left without, without even aloha. Fine, Laban, you want to know why? You're untrustworthy. You spent the last 20 years proving that you will do anything no matter what the original deal or agreement was. As far as the idols go, he doesn't know his wife has stolen them, so he tells Laban, hey, you find them, kill the person who has it. Rachel's like, yikes. In verse, uh, in verse uh, 33 here, so Laban went into Jacob's tent, into, Laban, into Leah's tent, and into the tents of his, the two female servants, but he did not find them, and he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt, um, Laban felt all around the tent, but did not find them, and she said to her father, let let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Ladies, you may have used that to get out of gym class, but Rachel was able to get out of being found that she was a thief. That's pretty impressive, right? But you know something? He deserves it too, because he taught her how to be, a de- to be deceptive. Now he's just getting it back, what he's been showing this entire time. Why did Rachel take Laban's teraphim? That has been the question throughout all of the ages. There are so many answers to this. I just want to give five, of the, five reasons why she may have taken his idols. We don't exactly know what her intentions were, only that she had taken them and she got away with it as well. One, perhaps she worshipped these idols and did not, want, did not want to be without them. I honestly think this is the most likely. She'd grown up with these idols. She's not, she's not like Isaac's mother, Rebecca, who as soon as she comes to be married to Isaac, she's already calling upon the name of the Lord, his God. No, she has grown up with these idols and it's hard to let those idols go. Yeah, I see this in new Christians all the time. There was dysfunctional ways that they grew up. There was dysfunctional ways they viewed God and now God is wanting those idols. And he wants them broken, but they steal away these idols and those idols have to be ferreted out in their life. Two, 
Perhaps she did not want her father to inquire of them, to use them as tools of divination to catch them, as he may have done previously done in Genesis chapter 30, verse 27. That's where Laban tells Jacob that through divination, he found out that God had blessed him because of Jacob. And I always say, like, you, don't, you didn't need to do divination. Why don't you just look around, Laban? Before Jacob came, you had nothing. Now Jacob's here, and you're a rich man. I find that to be pretty weak sauce. I don't think that that's the reason, but that is a possible reason. The third one, perhaps it was, um, it was because such idols were often used as deeds to property. And she thought that by taking the idol, she took whatever inheritance might be left to Laban's children. That's a remote possibility. I mean, that is something that happened in the ancient Near East, but it would have been something later on, as far as we understand from archaeology, that people would put the bill of sale on one of these household idols. And whoever had that bill of sale had the property. It's unlikely. It is possible. The, this one right here, perhaps, um, Rachel stole the teraphim simply to get back at her father, whom she felt mistreated her, her husband, and her whole family. This one kind of drawn from the scripture right here in which her and her sister said, he treats us like foreigners. He tries to steal away our inheritance. He's already given it away. Perhaps it was to get back at him. The last one, number five, I think is the most unlikely, but it is part of Jewish tradition. You might find in the Talmud or the Midrash. And that is that Rachel took the teraphim because she wanted to keep her father Laban from idolatry. I feel like they came up with this while they were still living in Egypt because there's a whole lot of denial in that. Um, Rachel is a wonderful woman in the scriptures. And later in the scriptures, um, she is seen as a virtuous woman. But I would remind you, this is well before even Jacob has started calling God his God. He refers to God as the God of his father, grandfather Abraham, and the God of his father, the father Isaac. I do think that that is the most unlikely, but I understand this because this is what God wants to do in your life is to take the idols out of your life and destroy them. When a new pastor comes in the church and they ask, they're taking over the church, they ask me about what, you know, just advice. I said this, everyone will tell you they have no golden calves and they'll believe that until you break one. Then all of a sudden you'll find out there are golden calves of many. There's this story about a pastor taking over this church and there was the piano that was in the corner and he decided he wanted to move it to the center of the stage. So he does so one week and the next week he's voted out. So another pastor comes along. He waits a couple months. He decides one, one, one Sunday, I'm going to take the piano, move it to the center. Next week they vote him out. out. The next pastor comes in. He pastors for 20 years and he has a big celebration. Come to the church. We're having a reunion. And these two pastors, they come and they see the piano is in the middle of the stage. So they ask him, how did you do that? And he tells them, every Sunday I moved it an inch. <laughs> every, everybody thinks they don't have golden calves. They don't have idols until they're broken. One of the works the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life is take away the idols. So I can understand why they think that, even though I do not think that, that is the case. I think she just couldn't give up the idols that she was raised with. In verses 36 through 55, there's this important word right here, Mizpah. Mizpah is the name of a couple cities in the Old Testament. It is mentioned in the Bible right here. The word Mizpah means watchtower or lookout. This is first mentioned in the reading that we have today. 
In verses 36 through 40, we see Jacob's anger kindled against, against Laban when he cannot find these idols anywhere. Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and betrayed and, and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have haughtily pursued me? For you have felt through all of my goods. Um, what have you found of all of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that, um, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What, ha- what was torn by wild bees I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself, for my hand, um, from my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night." There I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sheep and and my sheep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house, I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father and the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction in the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Warning to everyone who is a manipulator, one day the manipulated will have their day. Today or judgment day, the day comes and Jacob unloads on him. You know, you kind of see, you kind of think of, okay, he's talking to him. Why'd you leave without saying goodbye? And Jacob's like, because you're not trustworthy. And then 20 years of slights start pouring out from him. I see this in relationships all the time, marriage relationship, friendships or whatever. You have what seems like the issue, but the issue is not the issue. It's 20 years of issues. You see this a lot with siblings too. It seems like a very small thing. You haven't talked to your brother or sister for six years and you're like, okay, if they would just stop, if they would just apologize, it's not just that. It's also every time you grew up and you just don't know how to express it. All of a sudden this waterfall comes out of Jacob and he, he goes over all these things. The thing about the, about the ram that would be torn apart by, by animals, he didn't bring it to Laban. The custom was, if you had an animal, you were a shepherd, it got, it got eaten by, got destroyed by an animal, you would take the broken body, you'd show it to the owner, and you could be, so you could say, it's not my responsibility. This is what Jacob's sons do with the animal and then with his own son. When they bring the coat of many colors that's been torn, to their father as evidence that it was not their doing, even though it was their doing. Jacob does not even take his rights with Laban. He replaces the animal himself. Last week, I told you that Jacob was, that Jacob has a defender and this week he has a defender and this week you have a defender. He calls it plain. If it wasn't for the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, and that might seem weird to you because last time we left off on Isaac, he couldn't even get out of his tent and he couldn't see He's not saying, my dad's going to come and beat you up. See, we tend to think, thanks to movies, that everybody in the Bible who's on the side of the Lord is just a victim in waiting. It's not the case. In Abraham's time, he had a fighting force of over 300 men. I guarantee you under Isaac, that is multiplied. And Laban understands, there's only so far I can push before I call down wrath upon myself. He tells him, if it wasn't for 
the God of, my, God of Abraham and the fear of, Isaac, the fear of Isaac, Laban would have absolutely cheated him once again. He would have went away with absolutely nothing. But there is a God who sees. And he tells him, my God saw me. Mizpah. Verses 43 through 55, Laban doesn't want to give up. He really has no choice. He tells, he tells uh, Jacob that, you know, his wives, his children, everything he has is his, but let's not worry about that. Let's cut a covenant. Once again, a liar. They're not his. It's Laban who calls on the name of Yahweh as a witness here. This is a mirror to Bethel. An altar of stones are gathered and erected, which is what Becca read earlier today. And a promise is sworn. The God of Bethel is the God of Mizpah. When two parties can't agree, what is there left to do but to live in peace? God watches and will witness who breaks this peace. This is much more significant than these two could possibly understand here because God is constantly watching. There's an understanding by way of covenant that God really does watch over and judges between us. Do you feel forgotten by God? Mizpah. Are you confused with no understanding of what to do? Mizpah. The God of Bethel is the God of this moment as well. Do you feel lost? You've been spiritual Haran for too long and you want to finally come home? No, Mizpah. God is watching you. He knows where you're at. He is the same God who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. He is the true elder brother who seeks and saves that which is lost. Worship team, would you come up at this time? What is truly happening in Jacob's story is that the God of his fathers is coming after him. He's coming after him to come get him. Now he's in a state of rebellion. He's, he's, he's coming to this place of faith, but he's not there yet. But God is coming to come get him. The true heist of this and drama of this chapter is actually to get Jacob himself. He'd been lost in a faraway country. You may have heard the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, the lost coin, the lost sheep apply to every narrative that has ever been told. Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you as well. That God leaves the 99 to go after the one. He rips apart the whole house to find that one coin. And yes, prodigal, he's coming after you too. Whether you're, whether you're the lost son at home or you're the lost son in a faraway land, just as Jacob was in this faraway land. The word prodigal in the English, it doesn't mean wayward or sinful. It means to spend without any, without any understanding, with, with just spend frith, to spend until there's nothing less. And that is why Pastor Tim Keller said, the one who's truly prodigal in the story is the father, who spends a lot more than money, who gives a lot more than money. And our God gives more and more than any of us could possibly understand. Jacob, he is this younger brother in all ways. He has been lost in a faraway country, envying the pods the pigs were eating. But now the true elder brother, the Lord himself, has come to him to bring him home. He sees him, Mizpah. He sees you too. He sees that lost family member or friend who seems like they are so far away from the Lord. The Lord sees him and may he judge between us while we are apart. 
If they are truly Christ, then the enemy can't keep, keep them. We used to sing this song at camp, and maybe around my age you remember this. Well, I went to the enemy's camp, and I took back what he stole from me. You know, the problem with that song is that we're not the ones who sing this. The Lord, is, the Lord himself sings this. Because he comes into the enemy's camp, and he takes back what is his. And not the gates of hell will overcome. The schemes of man cannot overcome. The rebelliousness of his children will not overcome. He comes into the enemy's camp and he takes back what he stole from him. And the enemy is under his feet because God has put everything under his feet. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He finds Jacob's who are in Haran and he brings them back home to the promise. Maybe that's you today and you're in this faraway land. You don't know how you even got here anymore. Come home. Maybe today you have secret idols. Nobody has any clue. Like you're, you're involved in things that if people knew, you'd be terrified. And God is telling you, he wants these idols and he wants to break them. Maybe it's something that, maybe it's an idol in your life that's taken away your affection from God that people wouldn't even understand. They'd be like, oh, it's not that bad. But you know in your heart that the Lord, that you've drifted away the Lord because of this, maybe it's just a hobby. Maybe it is actually your phone has become an idol in your life. Maybe you need to be reminded of this, dear one. God is watching. God is watching and he sees where you're at. Those times you wake up at three o'clock in the morning in tears, he sees you and he is comforting you and he is there to help. Mizpah. The worship team is going to lead us in our final song. This is our time to respond to the message, to respond to God's word. We are not simply to be hearers of the word. You listen to my message today, you're like, oh, that's really neat about all the stuff, about Nana and all that. That means nothing. But as you've been listening to the word of God today, what has the Holy Spirit been speaking to you? Respond to it. Give away the idols. Come home. Or just be encouraged with the knowledge that God watches me. He sees me. There is a mispaw in my life as well. Worship team, lead us in our final song. Thank you.